You're listening to CITR 101.9, broadcasting from UBC's Point Grey campus, located on the traditional, unceded, Coast Salish territory of the Hunkaminam-speaking Musqueam people. The Marine Invertebrate Collection is represented by the color orange, Broadcasting from the University of British Columbia, where you can journey through BC's natural history at the BD Biodiversity Museum. This is Blue and Gold Cast. Broadcasting from the University of British Columbia, this is Blue and Gold Cast. I'm Santa Ono, the President and Vice Chancellor of UBC. On this season of the Blue and Gold Cast, I'm speaking with the people who are leading some of the most innovative and creative work coming out of our campuses. My guest today is Julio Montaner. Dr. Montaner is the Director of the British Columbia Center for Excellence in HIV AIDS, the Chair in the AIDS Research and Head of the Division of AIDS in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of British Columbia. He is a global leader in HIV and AIDS research and his work on antiretroviral therapy and advocating for treatment as prevention has had deep and lasting impacts on the field. He has authored hundreds of publications on HIV AIDS and he has received numerous awards and accolades for his work, including the Knowledge Translation Award from the Canadian Institutes of Health and the Queen Elizabeth II Diamond Jubilee Medal. He was inducted into the Canadian Medical Hall of Fame in 2015. It is an honor to have him on the show today. Julio, welcome to Blue and Goldcast. Can you tell us a little bit about how your career began? How did you end up in Vancouver? I'm originally from Buenos Aires, Argentina. My dad was a prominent physician back there. He had a prominent academic career in uh, respiratory medicine. And my desire was to work with him and hopefully be a force for transformation. Uh, very early on, although I did reasonably well in medical school, I felt that in order for me to be able to have the authority to do stuff, I needed to validate my credentials elsewhere. And so I discussed it with my dad. So I, I, I interviewed in a number of places. I went to Europe, I went to North America. And although I had fairly good sort of receptions, uh, you know, getting a job uh, like that is very difficult, particularly when you're a medical student. Anyways, uh, as it happens, I went to a medical conference in Uruguay. It was an international conference. As I was walking around and I, 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 I went to a symposium that I was interested on, a, a, a difficult topic at the time, uh, adult respiratory distress syndrome, something that I was very interested, in, but it, it was technically complicated. But at least I, I, I could never quite wrap my head around some of those uh, physiopathological issues. So I walked into this uh, room and I started to listen to a lecture. And there was this guy speaking a language that I didn't quite was comfortable with at the time. My children would argue that I'm still not comfortable, but that's another story. And, and, I, and I started to listen to him, and I, I was fascinated because even though he was his, giving his lecture in English, which I was not particularly proficient at the time, I understood everything. And stuff that I never quite crystallized in my mind became perfectly clear to me to the point that I was starting to ask myself questions. Uh, what about you did this? And if you did that, and if you change this, to the many experiments that he was uh, discussing. So he finished his talk, being young and not really con- 
conscientious about, you know, the implications that I was doing, perhaps. I decided I was going to approach him. I reached out and I said, Dr. Hogg, I, I hope you don't mind. My name is Julio Montana. I enjoyed your lecture. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions. So he was talking to a guy there from Nashville, by the way. Uh, thanks God he didn't join us because I would understand nothing that, <laughs> that he was talking about. And we sat down, I engaged with a conversation, and I asked him a bunch of uh, questions. We discussed various experiments. And by the end of the brief conversation, to be honest with you, he said, Dr. Montaner, you know, the experiments that you're uh, discussing are, are, are quite of interest. If you're interested, uh, I'll be happy to uh, entertain uh, an opportunity for you to come and uh, do those experiments in my laboratory back in Vancouver in Canada. I didn't know where Vancouver was. I didn't know uh, who he was. I really... I, I was just interested because I was fascinated, to be honest. And I talked to my dad, second in command, so to speak, at the time. My, my, my dad was, uh, as I said, very prominent in the field. And I said, look, this is what happened to me. Uh, he says, Julio, do you know who you really uh, engage with? And I said, I have no idea. And he says, well, this guy is a genius. He's, uh, he discovered the side of the uh, lesion, people who smoke in terms of COPD. And then I, I, they went on and on and on. I had no idea what I was talking about. And I said, Julio, you, you had to go. And he said, look, here, I'm going to. And so he grabbed a couple of his friends. He said, tell them what happened to you. And they, they, they were all like so excited. That night I couldn't sleep. And so the next morning I approached Jim Hogg during breakfast. And I said, Dr. Hogg, I hope you don't mind. Said, oh, no, Julio. Yes, yeah, so nice to see you. You know, very, very engaging, very, very friendly. And I said, you know, I'd like to reconcile. I said, yeah, of course, send me a, a letter and we'll keep in touch. And within a bunch of months, uh, eventually, I received a letter from him about uh, an opportunity to do research with him. And that was the beginning of the end or the end of the beginning, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but it totally transformed my life. It was the best thing I ever did. It's an amazing story. So, so you ended up in, in Vancouver, a place you hadn't even heard of. Where did you land? Were you, what part of Vancouver did you land in terms of where, where was your research carried out? So... Jim was, uh, at that time, a couple of years into uh, since he moved his laboratory from Montreal to uh, Vancouver, uh, he was just sort of starting to build uh, his research enterprise. And so he introduced me to John Rudy. Uh, at that time, John Rudy was the chairman of the Department of Medicine at St. Paul's, also based at UBC. But between John and, uh, and, uh, and Jim, they took me under their wing. They mentored me, and, and I, I started my, my clinical training, you know, Again, I was still beginning to understand the system and the language and everything else. So I have a great deal of uh, admiration for all of the patients that not just the two of them, but many others had with me in those early days. Eventually, this was the early 80s, and I made it into the respiratory fellowship. And as I was the, resp the respiratory fellow, the HIV epidemic just started. It had been described by the Americans in 81, but it didn't really hit. Vancouver until a couple of years later, and it, it really took off in the mid-80s, so to speak, 83, 84, 85. And by those days, the numbers were atrocious. The things were really out of control. And being the youngest member of the group, I, will, I would be sent down to emergency to deal with, which was the, 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 the critical sort of lethal, potentially lethal opportunistic infection for people with HIV. And the more I saw it, the more I, I drew parallels between other respiratory distress syndrome, which is what brought me down to work with Jim, and, and what we were seeing in the clinic. Eventually, one day, as I was doing a bronchoscopy 
in the ICU with a patient that was very severely ill. We dragged out a material that was basically suffocating this patient. There were bronchiolar casts that were perfectly resembling the, 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 the respiratory tree. And, you know, we looked at each other and we said, you know, no wonder this person cannot breathe. Basically, he, her lungs, it was a woman, are totally clotted with this uh, very viscous uh, and almost solidified material. And, and I had an idea. I, I took it to Jody Wright, who was senior to me in the pulmonary respiratory lab back in the day when I started. And I, and I, and I took it to her in the pathology lab and I said, Jody, I want you to help me uh, figure out what's in these casts. And we looked at it under the microscope. And we figured out that it were immunoglobulins. Uh, so we concluded that this was an, an exudate, uh, an inflammatory exudate. And I hypothesized that dealing with inflammation, aside from dealing with the infection, while we were trying to deal with infection with an homocystis organism, uh, could ameliorate the, the, the respiratory distress in these patients. And so we, we tried that by using corticosteroids, which was counterintuitive at the time, because people with HIV were felt to be immune suppressed. And if you give them more immune suppression, people would say, oh, well, you know, you're going to make it worse. And we, we said, well, let's try this and see what happens. I mean, they were dying. And so we tried it on a clinical basis. And, and within a matter of uh, a dozen patients that we did out of desperation in the ICU, people that were supposed to be dying 100% of the time, all of a sudden were making it out of the ICU. Of course, the more I, I work in HIV, the more I became interested. And it became clear to us that even though we were successful at treating and preventing opportunistic infections, we needed to do more. And that's when I decided to basically abandon the rest of my work and dedicate myself to find an antiretroviral therapy strategy in my work. Isn't it true that, on the of, of AIDS, that there were different phases of the public reaction? One was almost denial that there was a situation because of the way gay men were actually viewed, right, by the establishment, by governments. And it really took quite a bit of advocacy for there to be appropriate levels of funding and resource, not only in Canada, but even in the U.S., where it was a much bigger problem. What was it like in the early 80s with, with HIV and AIDS? So let me say a couple of things. First, uh, uh, we were inundated by HIV cases in the early phase of the epidemic. And although everything that you're saying is truth, you know, we didn't have time to uh, do advocacy and to go and lobby and to do, because it was really overwhelming. I mean, when you, when you look at COVID today, yes, COVID is bad and, uh, you know, you, you're all, but, 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 but this actually was uniformly lethal. And not only that, but there was a concern that we didn't know how it was transmitted early on. And we didn't know about universal precautions. We didn't, I was doing bronchoscopies without precautions when we started all of this. So thanks God. I mean, I, I don't know how we, we, we made it through the whole thing. The, the stigma and the discrimination related to HIV, not just the MSN, the sex with men population, or, uh, but every group that was most affected because at the end of the day, uh, it, it, it became a serious problem for us, for example, in the injection drug using community or in the commercial sex worker areas that we were not really familiar with before all of this happened. But, but the stigma and the discrimination were palpable. People often say, oh, well, you know, St. Paul's stepped up at the time and did the right thing and embraced the populations. I, I 
privately like to describe this as saying everybody walked back backwards so fast that St. Paul's was left there and it was left alone. And it's true, eventually, the sisters rallied behind the cause because they identified the fact that our patients were the people that needed the care the most. But that didn't happen until years into it. Oftentimes, people forget that if we had a separate unit to uh, care for people with HIV at the time, it was not because it was better for them. It was because they were not allowed in the other units. If I was receiving patients in the middle of the night, more often than not, I was receiving because the person that was on call at the other hospital, whatever hospital that would be, gave them a taxi voucher and said, you go to St. Paul's. So it was tough. Now, I want to get to uh, this huge transformative contribution that you made. You talked about how you got interested in AIDS. Tell me a little bit about antiretroviral therapy in heart. What exactly does that mean and why was it important as a prevention strategy? We were in the middle of dealing with all of the opportunistic infections and, and we were very successful at treating, preventing them but our patients were going on to die regardless. And this became a huge frustration for us. And so talking to John Rudy and the like, we, we felt that it was a, a imperative that now at the time, 84, 85, that the virus had been identified, that we start paying attention to what could we do uh, to deal with the underlying virus, which was the reason why the, the immunity was basically gone and people were susceptible to all of these infections and cancers. So when the first drug became available, ACT, we were lucky enough that because of the prominence of the work that we had done together, the government was looking for some way to start getting people aware of uh, this new molecule. And so John was invited to be uh, the PI of the first antiretroviral therapy trial in Canada. That was a multi-center Canadian ACT trial, MCAT. I never forget about it. And I was the, the, the research fellow, if you want to put it that way. So I, my job was to look after the patients and coordinate staff. And I got to know Mark Weinberg, Michael O'Jonesy, a number of you know, senior people, biologists, clinicians. And I, I, I was soaking up all this knowledge every possible way I could. The, the early experience with ACT was kind of mixed. Clinical trials had shown that ACT could prolong survival. But the side effects, the tolerability issues, and the, and, the, and the quantitative sort of improvement related to it, no matter how you measure it at the time, was very limited. And so it became very controversial. But I was fortunate enough that I was doing work with Mark Weinberg, late Mark Weinberg. And, and so I was doing correlates of resistance in our patients. Because my dad had an expertise in tuberculosis, I was drawing parallels with the TB experience. And I, and I became interested in the fact that when exposed to ACT, uh, a, a large number of these people would eventually select for resistant variants. And so I started to ponder whether we could add treatment to this. So we started to try alternating drugs, adding drugs, you know, being young and a bit more aggressive than many. I, I was shopping around the world for a, a third candidate drug that we could combine with this uh, two agents at the time, ACT and DDI. I ran into uh, a, a person that I knew, Maureen Myers, formerly from the NIH, and now working uh, as a research lead for Boringer Ingerheim. And they had a new drug. It was called nevirapine. It was a non-nucleoside analog, the first non-nucleoside reverse transcriptase that became available. And, and I, made, I made my pitch about, you know, trying this triple drug therapy 
in previously untreated individuals. So what happens was that um, if, if you treat sequentially and people become resistant to one drug and then resistant to the other drug and then resistant to the other drug, the benefit of the treatment becomes very short-lasted. And I hypothesize that if we were to use a TB approach and give the three drugs and one so that we could have a maximal effect at once, we may render the ability of the virus sort of incompetent in, in its ability to generate resistance, except that they were testing the drug predominantly in experienced patients. And so Maureen Myers was very fond of my work and my passion and, and, and the energy that I was bringing to the table. So she said, look, I'm going to convince the German family, it was a family-owned company, to, 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 to do a, a one pilot study to look at this. And so lo and behold, it was my first international collaborative trial. We call it the INCAS trial because it involved Italy, Netherlands, Canada, Australia, and the States. That was my, my biggest contribution at the time. <laughs> Came up with the acronym. And we randomized uh, volunteers to get two drugs or two other drugs or the combination of the three drugs. So we had basically all of the variables. We treated people for a period of time. They were all not previously treated. And within a year, we have blinded data, six months of follow-up, complete follow-up. We sent it to the laboratory. Mark Weinberg was, was measuring uh, what in those days we used to call time to viral culture positivity as a surrogate marker of, of the antiviral potency of the regimen. So the better your regimen, the longer it would take for the uh, virus to grow. That gives you the signal how pessimistic we were uh, in our thinking around these drugs, because we were basically expecting that everybody would eventually overcome the effect of the drugs. I go to a meeting in Bakis in, uh, in late uh, 1995. Mark Weinberg uh, calls me aside and he says, Julio, I need a moment with you privately. We have issues with the Incas trial. I said, Mark, what are you talking about? He says, I'm not able to grow virus in the proportion of the patients in the trial. I said, well, Mark, uh, and why is that a problem? I says, well, because we always grow virus in everybody, no matter what. And I said, but Mark, have you thought maybe the drugs are working? I said, no, no, that's not possible. I said, oh my God, what are we going to do? I says, are you sure, Julio, that you're not messing up with the methodology or the protocols? I said, no, Mark, we're doing it the same way that we always did it. I mean, the, no, no, that's not the case. And he said, well, look, if we cannot measure the virus, I don't know what we're going to measure. You know, I, what are we going to do? And I said, well, Mark, look, give me a little bit of time. I'm going to go back to Vancouver. I'm going to re revisit all of the protocols to be sure that everything is fine. Let me see what happens. So I went back home, came back home, and I called the team. We looked at everything. Everything is fine. As it happens, John Sininsky, who was a scientist working with Roche and a good friend of us, had actually... Uh, sent me a bunch of kits of a new test that they were sort of uh, prototype to see what, what it could uh, mean, what we could do with that. And he said, Julio, look, if you find a group of patients that you find this may be of interest, just give it a try and see, uh, see if you can tell me what do you think about it. Lo and behold, this was a PCR assay, the first generation of a quantitative viral load assay. So we got the PCR machine with them and the kit. And we got all of that because we were going to be a beta testing site in a protocol yet to be defined because we had access to a lot of samples, a lot of patients. So they, they said, if anybody can help us to figure out what it means, you guys can do it. I said, you know what? 
I'm going to run all of these samples and see what happens. The, the PCR, even though in those days took longer, it, it was done very quickly. We ran all of the samples in our laboratory. Within a matter of a couple of weeks, I got a plot that shows two lines going down and bouncing up and one line coming down and staying down. Correct. Right. The triple, triple treated. Go ahead. <laughs> you got it. And so I look at this and I said, oh my God, the triple therapy works. And that, let me remind you, uh, the, these were unblinded data because it was six months. So I, I was not authorized to unblind the study. But, you know, de facto, it, it was the only explanation. So I share it with everybody. I share it with a bunch of colleagues. As it happens, uh, a, a Trip Gulick, an American colleague, uh, working with Merck, at the same time, uh, was doing a clinical trial on ACT, 3TC, and Indinavir, a protein inhibitor, and basically coming up with the same results, even though we had never shared notes or anything like that. And so by early 1996, we had, two separate clinical trials using two different modalities where adding more antiviral power, you could crash down the virus. And if you continue to take the medicines, you keep it there. Now, what did it mean? We didn't know. But in my travels, I had run into John Mellors, an excellent virologist. He's based at Hopkins. And I, and I talked to John and I said, tell me about your experience with, with, a, with, with a quantitative PCR. And so what he had done is he applied the quantitative PCR to a cohort of individuals who were not treated. He measured the viral load and he established that the cross-sectional viral load was a, the best possible predictor of clinical outcome over a three-year period. In other words, if you had a high viral load, the likelihood of death was very high. If you have a low viral load, the likelihood of survival was very high. And so we hypothesized then that an artificially decreased antiretroviral therapy-mediated viral load, if kept that way, would allow the immune system to uh, come back, which we saw in our trials. But furthermore, it could replicate the cross-sectional observation of Mellors. So we put Golip, Montaner, and Mellors together. We, we crafted that story. And in 1996, we came out at the Vancouver International Conference, which I happen to be one of the organizers, we re reshaped the program, we made it about heart, and it was the, the, the big coming out party for heart. It was absolutely incredible. We got tremendous opposition from community, from everybody, scientists, all kinds of people. Oh, this is premature, so on and so forth. But, you know, our position was people are dying, and, and this is the best data that we have. There is no harm on accelerating the development and moving on to the next phase. We put all of the data together, and within months, the, the, the clinical status of my patients, who now were accessing free, because the government of British Columbia was the first jurisdiction that made it available for free to anybody, the, the health status of my patients dramatically changed, and the mortality started to decrease immediately. What advice do you have for young researchers, especially clinician scientists, who are doing something very innovative, especially before you're, you're, you're fully established and you face that kind of criticism, what advice do you have for them? Because you, you, you stood up to it. You know, Santa, uh, I have to be very careful here. My advice to young scientists is be careful because this, I, I made it to the other side 
but I have a lot of scars to show for it. And some of those are very deep, and some of those were potential life or, or career ending. Career limiting moment. Career limiting oh, moments. <laughs> career, career ending moments. Yeah. Um, so, and you know, I, 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 I'm not going to sort of spill my guts here with all of that, but suffice to say that these are difficult uh, situations. And I, what I would advise young scientists or or people that are beginning a career are a couple of things that you can learn from what we discussed so far. First is that I find lots of people that are incredibly motivated to pursue an academic career and they walk into it with a defined idea of what they want to do. And I did that. Uh, I wanted to do ARDS, other respiratory stress syndrome, pulmonary medicine, public health, blah, blah, blah. And guess what? And I changed my mind and I moved into the other direction. Why? Because it was the opportunity, it was the important issue, it was the relevant issue, and it was where I needed to be to make a difference. So the first one is to remain, keep your eye options open and, and, and be smart, because at the end of the day, all of this is highly gratifying. What you want is to do good science, and, and if you're lucky, uh, science that you can then implement and change people's life and societal outcomes and the like. So. I find myself in this position and I am incredibly delighted. But if I would have been too stubbornly fixed on doing what I originally intended, I would have find myself in a corner uh, and, and without anywhere to go. Next, uh, as you progress with this kind of approach, uh, you may find controversy. Be sure that you have a mentor that will have the clout and the understanding uh, and the ability to support your work without uh, throwing you under the bus. And I was fortunate that Jim Hogg and, and John Rudy in particular played a role for me at a time in which I was young, naive, and I, you know, I, I was doing the best I could and I could have hurt myself, but they were, they were very incredibly helpful in, 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 in guiding me how to do this. It is critically important that we as an institution collectively understand that success has a price, but for us to reach that success, which is important for our academic progression, for our students, for our patients, for our public health program, we need to be able to have a protective environment beyond what people out there realize. Well, you know, we're very proud of you for all of your seminal contributions, for your mentoring of other people who have gone on to their own eminent careers. I don't know how many listeners know this, but there has been a commemorative stamp recognizing your achievements. I have it framed in my office. I'm very proud of it. And thank you so much for, for giving this much of your very valuable time to have a conversation. It's really an honor to have you as a member of our faculty. Thank you, Santana. I thank you for your support and for your encouragement. That's very much appreciated. Dr. Julio Montaner. Thanks so much for being on Blue and Goldcast today. Dr. Julio Montaner is the director of the British Columbia Center for Excellence in HIV AIDS, the chair in AIDS research, and head of the division of AIDS in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of British Columbia. That does it for this episode. You can find links to our guest's work as well as previous editions of the show at blueandgoldcast.com. You can also find us on your favorite podcast app 
like Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. You can tweet me at UBC Prez. That's Prez with a Z. I'm Santa Ono. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to a sided media production. C I D E D. Find out more at sidedmedia.ca.